Welcome to Beyond the Classroom, Michael Government Chat. On this episode, we bring in longtime educator and legendary mock trial coach, Mr. Christopher Amedio. Mr. Amedio has been teaching at Jackson High School for almost 20 years, and for about the last 10, he has been teaching government. Mr. Amedio has a passion and extreme knowledge on the Supreme Court. Take a listen as we discuss all things Supreme Court and the important cases that have been decided on by the justices. Enjoy this episode of Beyond the Classroom, Michael Government Chat. Yo! Hey, Mr. Michael. How are you, sir? Oh, we're hanging in there. Awesome. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Awesome. Perfect. Things are good your way? Family? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be nice if the weather was a little bit nicer all the time, but. Uh... <laughs> Ohio. <laughs> yeah, Beautiful no doubt. We'll probably have snow one more time. Yeah. Your family staying healthy? Yeah. No, we're good. Uh, you know, just trying to stay busy. Uh, my mom right. has a, a family business. God, we're, they're busier than heck. Uh, she does some stuff with the medical industry and, uh, you know, they're just going crazy right now. Uh, right. Sure. Is, you know, uh, keeping them busy. So That's great. Uh, let's uh, go ahead and dive in. Uh, okay. Why don't you go ahead and just give a little background? Uh, obviously, I think it's important to share Jackson High School alum. Um, and then kind of how long have you been teaching government? Uh, and obviously, most recently, AP government. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is Mr. Emilio. Um, I've been teaching uh, at Jackson High School uh, for 18 years. Um, this is my, gosh, probably at least 10th year teaching some sort of government. Um, I've been teaching AP for the last seven, um, so I've been doing that for quite a while. Um, I was formerly our mock trial coach at the high school, which, uh, given that we're talking about the courts today, um, I thought was kind of relevant um, and kind of sparked my passion and sort of my expertise in the judicial branch. Legendary mock trial coach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. When you think about the court, and we'll dive into some more information on the court, but in your mind, why do you think the Supreme Court is just so important? Um, I think the Supreme Court is so important because uh, it is a court of last resort in the United States. There's nowhere else to go. Um, it, uh, you know, back in Marbury versus Madison, gave itself the power of judicial review, so it has a really great deal of clout to declare both state and federal laws unconstitutional. Um, and it is actually in our federal government, the one branch of government that always has a better approval rating than the president and Congress. Um, and the people trust it. Um, and I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for that with uh, obviously the uh, polarization we see in our um, society today. No doubt. Um, how about a, just a little background on the court? Obviously, there's nine justices right now. Uh, you know, they're appointed by the president, confirmed by the uh, Senate. Uh, they serve for life or, you know, in, until death or retirement. But but most of them are, are you know, serving for life. Um, you know, they, they love that power. Um, but how, how about how do they meet? You know, uh, when do they meet? How do they give out, you know, rulings or decisions? You know, what maybe uh, does like the, I don't want to use uh, the word, but like an off season look like uh, for the justices, et cetera. 
Okay. Yeah. Um, just some preliminary things too, before I dive into that. Um, the, you know, one thing I think it's important, um, that everybody understands that often even people in society don't is that we have a dual court system in the United States. And so we have a state court system, uh, and a federal court system, and they are independent of one another. Um, and so there's this great myth that a case could work its way all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court um, and be heard. And that's pretty rare. Uh, you probably have a better chance of becoming a professional athlete or getting struck by lightning than having a case get heard by the Supreme Court. And the reason for that uh, is because of that separation, because state constitutions uh, mirror the federal constitution so closely um, that you basically would have to argue uh, when you're at the state Supreme Court level, assuming your case even makes it there, you would have to argue um, that your case is somehow a constitutional violation under the U.S. Constitution. And basically three courts have now made a mistake that goes against you. So um, it's very unusual um, and unlikely that a case gets heard by the Supreme Court. Um, in terms of obviously uh, sort of when they meet and, uh, and all that. Um, so basically, um, they, have a, a, they have a term uh, during the year. Um, the, the fall term is from October to about December. Um, and then they take a little break, um, as we all do for the holidays. Uh, they'll come back sometime in January, and they'll probably meet until about the end of May-ish formally. Um, then they'll have like a summer break, but really there's not much of a break because at the, that entire time, um, they're researching, um, cases, upcoming cases, um, and deliberate and starting to, um, determine, uh, from the petitions they get, um, what cases they're going to hear in the next fall. So they're always doing homework, uh, the entire time, um, and, you know, there's a lot of great mystery about that because there's really nothing in Article 3 of the Constitution about procedures um, or any of that. So um, what we basically have is just the firsthand accounts from justices that have served on the court um, as to sort of the protocols that they undergo when they are meeting and stuff like that. So um, and obviously uh, kind of leads into the point of, well, how does a case even get selected by the Supreme Court? Um, and that is something we call, uh, the writ of certiorari or in, you know, in Latin means the rule of four. Um, so the Supreme court gets about 9,000 petitions of cases, uh, that people are basically requesting, uh, their case be heard by the court every year. That's 9,000 a year. Um, and so, um, that can be petitioned from a state court, the federal courts, uh, of appeals, um, those types of places. Uh, and so from that, they're going to narrow down that 9,000 to about 85 that they'll actually hear in a year. Um, so um, very slim chance, again, of a case getting actually heard. And the way that works is it takes four justices, that rule of four, um, for them to agree that that case has merit enough to get a hearing before the Supreme Court. Very nice. I, you know, it's. I think you, you hit on a kind of key point there. It's this, this such a small part of that constitution, um, and there is there's so much kind of mystery about it sometimes. But 
what is out there and kind of what you talked about, you know, has led to some key understandings of it. But uh, it is it's just a fascinating, you know, branch to, to study because there is, you know, it's, you know, there's still light in the Constitution that the guidance there for the justices is really just the precedent before them. But the precedent could always change by, you know, a, a new uh, decision or a new way of doing things. It's it's it really is fascinating. Uh, obviously, there's there's been so many, you know, landmark cases when you when you start diving into the Supreme Court. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, you, you can't skip over just the First Amendment, you know, the First Amendment, freedom of speech and, and press religion. Um, you know, some would argue probably the most important amendment. Um, but what are some of the, you know, landmark cases, uh, on the first amendment and, and kind of its impact? Um, I would start with, uh, one, obviously that you all are familiar with in Shank versus the United States, given the, uh, air test. Um, but Shank versus the United States is very significant at a sort of a federal level. Um, it had to deal with, you know, this guy, Mr. Shank that, um, was handing out leaflets to basically dodge the draft, um, during World War One, and uh, he was arrested, prosecuted, um, and tried under the Espionage and Sedition Act. And the Supreme Court declared that that he had the freedom of speech to do that. That what he was doing was not presenting a clear and present danger uh, to the United States. So, um, you know, I think that's one. Um, I think Tinker versus Des Moines. Uh, Tinker, Tinker versus Des Moines uh, for our students, I think, is probably the most significant when you're thinking about speech in schools, because I think there's this misnomer that they have no rights in school and um, no right to speech. But that um, Tinker decided that was not true. Um, and of course, that dealt with the students wearing the black armbands um, to school in silent protest of the Vietnam War draft. And um, the court decided in that case that they could not be disciplined um, unless uh, the school could prove ultimately that what they were doing was substantially disruptive or conflicted with the overall mission of the school. Um, and obviously they ruled in favor of the students in that case. Um, so I would say that that's probably an extremely significant one for speech. Um, there's another one, Texas versus Johnson. Um, that deals with flag burning. Um, this was in the 1980s. Um, gentleman in Texas uh, was burning an American flag, and Texas had a law uh, that was against flag desecration, the desecration of the American flag. Um, and um, of course, this man's arrested and all that. And uh, ultimately, the court decided that that was a freedom of speech, um, that that law in the state of Texas was unconstitutional. Um, kind of sparked briefly, a lot of people don't know this because it didn't really go anywhere, but uh, a big movement to amend the Constitution to overturn that decision. Um, I think it was the older George Bush, when he was president, was a big proponent uh, of overturning the Texas versus Johnson case. Um, and But that didn't really go anywhere. So that's sort of the law of the land. Now you are able to burn an American flag in protest. The last one I would mention is freedom of the press. Um, and probably the big one there is New York Times versus the United States. Um, this had to do with um, the New York Times um, being leaked to them, the Pentagon Papers in the early 1970s. Um, they basically demonstrated that the Johnson administration had lied to the American people about the Vietnam War. Um, and 
um, the United States government under Richard Nixon, who was president at the time, uh, you know, took the Times to court, as well as the Washington Post, I should point out. And um, the court ended up deciding in favor of the newspapers and freedom of the press um, that basically there was no prior restraint, uh, as no national security risk was really present by them publishing those papers at the time. Um, and there was no inevitable direct or immediate uh, threat to American forces or security. Very nice. How about, uh, you know, another kind of just important amendment? And uh, I know a lot that, you know, our, our students are always interested in is the Fourth Amendment. And, and obviously, you know, for seniors, you know, they're coming up on their time of, of ending in school. Uh, but there's a lot of decisions on, you know, kind of K through 12. But then Obviously, there, there's things that, you know, happen. And, and we had uh, Eric on uh, Erica school on our first episode, just, you know, you're looking at Fourth Amendment when it comes to, you know, when you're in your car, uh, in your house, uh, there, there's so many things that can fall under that. But how about some of the important cases when it comes to the Fourth Amendment? Yeah, Fourth Amendment cases. And really, I think the, the overall point here is in the Bill of Rights is that most of our amendments there have to do with your rights if you are going to be accused by the government of a crime. Um, I think there's like four of the Ten Amendments um, deal with some sort of criminal rights. So, um, it, you know, it's critical. And actually, the Supreme Court hears a lot of these cases. But um, probably one of the most significant ones is Matt versus Ohio, uh, 1961. Um, Dollary Matt, um, the police came to her house. They thought there was basically a terrorist on the loose um, in Cleveland. Um, Cleveland police come to her house um, and, you know, threaten um, to enter her house and search her house. And she asked for a warrant. They could not produce one. So they left. They came back later, um, waved a piece of paper at her that they claimed was a warrant, burst in her house, searched their house, her house. Don't find anybody, but find some obscene materials um, and arrest her on that charge instead. Um, and goes to the, ultimately goes to the Supreme Court because she challenged her conviction as a legal search and seizure. And the Supreme Court agreed. And that's where we kind of get the idea for the first time, the exclusionary rule that basically uh, illegally seized evidence cannot be used against you um, in court. Um, and of course, there are exceptions to that. Um, that rule if something's in plain sight. If, um, you know, if something could have been discovered anyways, without that evidence, but um, that is the law of the land. Uh, a second one, uh, 1967, there was a case called Katz versus the United States that dealt with uh, wiretapping. Um, Mr. Katz went into a telephone booth uh, and made a phone call. Of course, we don't have that problem anymore, but um, he went in the telephone booth and the FBI had tapped uh, the telephone booth. They placed a tap on the outside um, and um, recorded this information. Well, the court determined in that Supreme Court case that Mr. Katz had a reasonable expectation of privacy when he went in a telephone booth, closed the door to have that conversation, and that the wiretap was unconstitutional. Now, that might sound kind of like an outdated court case, um, but when you think about the implications for today, we may not have telephone booths anymore, um, but obviously with our cell phones, um, you know, and talking on those and, and all of that, it really holds the government accountable to getting that warrant before they pursue you and that sort of thing. 
the last one I wanted to mention was Terry versus Ohio. Um, this had to do, this has to do with stop and frisk. Um, and, uh, Mr. Terry was kind of loitering outside of a store, uh, and a police officer's walking down the street, notices basically a bulge, uh, in his pants that appeared to be a gun, um, and stopped and frisked him. Um, the court actually did uphold the stop and frisk as reasonable, um, because of the need to protect officers and the general public. Um, but again, established sort of the reasonableness standard for something like that. Of course, the former governor of New York, uh, Michael Bloomberg, who briefly ran for president, um, you know, got in some trouble with stop and frisk in New York City. Um, and that's because he basically failed to adhere to the Terry standard. Interesting. You know, you, you kind of talked about it right at the beginning of this, but obviously, you know, these I would say almost a majority, a large majority of these cases are they're really more of protecting our rights than really protecting the government. And and I think that's very important to understand. And and really what, what comes out of the importance of this court, um, you know, there's there's so many different uh, intricacies of, of this court. And uh, it provides us, you know, a lot of our freedoms that, you know, often we take for granted. Um uh, how about, is there any other, you know, kind of, you know, landmark cases? Obviously, you mentioned Marbury v. Madison. You know, that uh, basically sets up the court uh, system that we love. But are there any other, like, landmark cases in your mind that have, uh, you know, kind of transformed the court or, or maybe transformed the country? Yeah, um, I would say, um, you know, sticking with criminal rights for a minute, I would mention Miranda versus Arizona and the Fifth Amendment. Um, and that was in 1966, but, you know, again, it protects you from self-incrimination, um, and established that the authorities have to verbally read you your rights, the right to remain silent. Anything you say can be used against you in the court of law, the right to an attorney. If you can't afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. Um, do you understand the rights as I've read them to you? Um, and, you know, really make sure the, the, the authorities, you know, there were a lot of, you could go do some research. But there are a lot of really suspect things that police were doing, kind of like the wild, wild west of law enforcement there for a while prior to Miranda. Um, and so this kind of really locked it down uh, at the state level. Um, another one with criminal rights would be Gideon versus Wainwright in 1963. Um, the right to have a lawyer, regardless, I mean, if you can't afford a lawyer, um, you, you know, you can have a lawyer provided to you. Um, you know, Mr. Gideon initially was forced to represent himself, which is never recommended. Um, and so this kind of, you know, really solidified that and said, you know what, states, you have to allow, um, you know, people to have a lawyer. Um, obviously, the biggie, um, though, is probably Roe versus Wade, um, 1973, um, right to privacy uh, when it comes to abortions, um, really demonstrated, I think, in modern times. Uh, the ability of the Supreme Court, and not that it happens very often, but the ability of the Supreme Court to make policy um, and, to, and to make the law of the land um, by overturning a state statute that outlawed abortion, but applying it to the rest of the nation um, and legalizing abortion in the United States, which, of course, is still very controversial. And then if you want to find something kind of an equivalent to that, uh, Obergefell versus Hodges back in 2015 uh, the legalization of gay marriage 
uh, to me is the equivalent of a Roe versus Wade, um, where the court outlawed um, actually several states' policies in our region. Uh, Ohio, Michigan, Tennessee, Kentucky all had laws that banned uh, gay marriage, um, and whereas other parts of the country had legalized it at the time, and the courts reconciled that conflict and um, legalized gay marriage across the United States, much like they had with abortion in 1973. Definitely. I'll, I'll, I'll end with this, and, and this is kind of always a, an interesting thing, I think, uh, when you start studying the court. But the size is always something interesting. Um, obviously, there's nine justices right now. Uh, you know, I'm sure students, you know, hopefully remember back to U.S. history class, you know, FDR's court packing plan to, you know, uh, put the court on his side and, and enlarge the size of the court so he had justices on his side. But do you think we'll ever see a, a change in that court size? Because obviously, and I know we talked about it in my Gov class, you know, at one point in time, there, there was not nine justices. You know, it was a lot smaller of a court. Right. Uh, but do you think there will ever be a, a change in that size again? Or, or is nine maybe that solid number for, for quite some time? Yeah, I, I think I feel like it's a pretty solid number. Um, I know, um, like Pete Buttigieg, when he was running, um, he had a plan to kind of expand the court a little bit. Um, and I know there's some idea out there about that, but the tradition of it, um, it's an odd number, obviously, which is good. Um, I think it's a pretty solid number. Um, I don't really know that you can make a good case for increasing the size of it. Um, and I guess it kind of leads to the point, you know, you mentioned the court packing, you know, obviously we've seen, um, the, the courts become, uh, sort of a political pawn, um, in recent years. Um, with obviously the Republicans sort of, you know, obstructing the nomination of Merrick Garland when Obama was leaving office, and then the Democrats uh, trying to block uh, Brett Kavanaugh. And uh, even you go back to the 80s, really, the Democrats kind of started that with um, getting Robert Bork um, not confirmed uh, to the Supreme Court. Um, you know, so I think a lot of the talk about increasing the size is because, uh, the political parties, you know, are jockeying for control and it's really unfortunate. I think one of the things that everybody needs to remember, you know, not that these, these justices, these justices are human and they're going to, you know, judge cases with their ideology. Um, but to some extent, but also the law, but these guys are legal professionals. They're not politicians. They don't run for election. You know, you mentioned the fact that they serve for life. Their pays can't be, you know, touched basically. Um, you know, so there can't be leverage that way. Um, so that judicial independence, I think is really key. I mean, these are just legal scholars. Um, you know, these aren't politicians, but the politicians have made the court political in recent years, which is very unfortunate and kind of, I think started to taint it in some people's eyes because, like I said at the beginning, I mean, they, their approval rating is usually almost always better than the president and Congress. No, spot on. No, I love how you finished that there. I mean, it's, it, it'll be very interesting to kind of see the, the balance, you know, of those three branches. Um, you know, it, it, it is a shame that it's gotten to be that political because it's, you know, not a political position. Really looking at that constitution, and, and that's really, really all they're worried about. But 
Uh, I appreciate your time Absolutely. today. Um, you know, hopefully the next few weeks uh, are well and, and the family stays healthy and uh, we get to yeah, see you Yeah, you too, sir. Everybody stay healthy and uh, safe distancing. <laughs> Thanks, Mr. Take Media. care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.